said amen. amen. As Jeff mentioned, 21 years ago, he came over to work with me, and it wasn't very long before we recognized the amazing giftedness that God has given him. And he is actually very modest. He didn't tell you this, but I can tell you. He pioneered a lot of things here in the 11 years that he was here at Apostles. He, for example, he pioneered the Christianity Examined and Christianity Explained that uh, we used to have it in homes. He might not think that I remember that. But then he pioneered the family ministry, which is really uh, a remarkable thing. And I want to tell you something, Jeff and Gwen, we love it when people come home. Will you stand up, please? Where are you? Here you are. Put the camera on him. Here you go. He had a lot more hair back then. <laughs> Welcome home. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you make the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ordered by you and therefore will be acceptable to you. And in the end, we produce fruit of the Holy Spirit. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cancel culture. Have you heard that? Have you heard of it? What is it? Well, the BBC, and the reason I asked the team to put the BBC article up there, because some people will go, I said, I don't believe Michael, but they will believe the BBC. <laughs> That's okay. That's all I want to put it up there. The BBC said on the February 22, I think it was February 22, 2021, says... Those are the most weaponized words today. It's the most weaponized words today. There you go. And it goes on to talk about a U.S. president banned from social media. A longtime national science reporter is forced to resign. School district drops the name of a famous American from their building. A congresswoman was punished for her views. That was actually written before Dr. Zeus was canceled. <laughs> Sam, I am. <laughs> Two members of Congress introduced legislation to close down news outlets with which they disagree. These and hundreds more examples of cancel culture in the 21st century. What is cancel culture? I talk about it a great deal in my book, Hope for This Present Crisis. But it's a movement by neo-Marxists. They are zealous. It's a religious zealousy. Seeking to suppress a speech which they consider to be controversial they consider to be. They are in charge. They decide what you say and what we say and what we don't say. They were aided by their fellow suppressors in the media. Uh, they are on a rampage right now. Many of the leaders of this movement are multi-billionaires, owners of social media in Silicon Valley. The result of all this cancel culture is the rejection of friends by friends. 
It's the rejection of family members of the other family members. It's the termination of employees. It is the loss of business opportunity, uh, the denial of platform to express what they consider to be provocative views. That's all in the BBC, by the way. And as you know, it's not a Bible-believing conservative outfit. <laughs> in fact, it's the most liberal outfit in the world media today. Please hear me right. The council culture Gestapo's have one objective, and that is to suppress objective truth, which they see as a form of oppression, including the Christian faith. Their method of achieving their dominance is to frighten people into compliance. In their despising of the truth, they use violence and intimidation. They may confront us in restaurants. They may confront us in the streets. And yes, they may even confront us in churches. They may actually demand that we raise our fist or chant some slogans or kneel before them. Or else they will threaten us with injury, even death. Let me tell you something. I, for one, I only kneel to King Jesus. Who is, by the way, the only solution and the only answer to racism and to hatred and all the things that they think they can cure with their violence. Jesus is the only one who can produce love in our hearts that we will love everyone regardless of who they are. Please listen to me. This forced division in our culture, whether between the sexes or the races, races all of this forced division is of Satan. But the Bible talks about another form of division of which I'll be talking about today. There is a biblical division. There is a Bible-inspired division. And so if you would turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 12, verse 49 to 59. By the way, this is the end of chapter 12. I've been going through chapter 12 now for four weeks. And this is a series of messages. Jonathan is preaching the same text at 9 o'clock. We're calling it Enduring Wisdom, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ from Luke. This division that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to show you in the Scripture, is not by force or by coercion. This division is not violently imposed. This division is not sought or invited by the Christian believers. This division can and does take place between those who love Jesus and worship Him alone, and those who have rejected Him. All together. Now turn, I hope you found it, and if you don't have your own Bible, page 1619 in the Pew Bible, grab one, page 1619, 
and I'm going to preach to you, I'm going to expound to you what is considered to be the most controversial, controversial, here you go again, the most misunderstood passage in the Scripture, the most misinterpreted passage in the Scripture, and certainly in the Gospels. You found it? Stand up in honor of the Word of God with me. And as we have been doing throughout the series of messages, I will read the first verse, and then you read it aloud. I have come to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Be seated, please. For 2,000 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ has divided humanity into two categories, no third, two categories, those who are saved and those who are lost, those who are redeemed and those who are unredeemed, those who will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus and those who will spend eternity in hell with Satan. Two divisions. Hear me right. This is not a forced division by one side against the other. No, 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 no. This is not a division that is created by violence and intimidation. No. This is not the kind of division that these neo-Marxists and Howard Zinn and others have created to divide people apart. No. This division by individual choice. It's by individual choice. This division is created by men's volition. When Jesus said in Luke 12, 49, I have come, he is describing his mission that brought him from heaven. For I tell you that he came directly from heaven. Those who say Jesus is just a founder of another religion, he is just a leader of another religion, are absolutely wrong. Jesus came from heaven because he coexisted with God the Father before all worlds. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come. 
He came from heaven to seek and save that which is lost. In John 5, 43, Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. In John 10, 10, when he's talking about himself as the good shepherd, he said, the Son of Man has come that his sheep may have life and then have it more abundantly. And while his mission from heaven is to save that which was lost, but also his mission is to bring judgment, God's judgment. You see, Jesus has a dual mission, a dual mission. Um, Those who have rejected him and chose not to be saved, and therefore they will spend eternity in judgment and hell, and those who have received him and escaped that judgment. The Bible is often speaks, all Old Testament, New Testament, often speaks of judgment as fire. And just as fire has a dual purpose, so is the coming of Jesus. The Jewish hearers who were listening to Jesus at that time, uh, they understood the Old Testament passages about the fire of judgment. But they believe that that fire of judgment is going to only hit the Gentiles. It's never going to hit them as Jews. And he is trying to wake them up from their stupor. Just as fire has a dual purpose, so is the coming of Jesus Christ. What is the dual purpose of fire? Well, on the one hand, fire consumes what is combustible. But on the other hand, fire does not consume that which is not combustible. Fire burns hay so fast and so quickly, but it purifies gold. This is the dual role of the fire. The gospel fire either purges or purifies. Take your pick. Take your pick. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.16, it is to one the aroma of death to death, and to the other is the aroma of life to life. First of all, this fire, Jesus said, will take place on the cross. I'm going to explain that to you. It's very important. That is why this passage is vitally important passage to understand. It is the gospel in 10 verses. He is referring to that fire of the baptism that he has to undertake take the cross. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's very important. The instruction that Jesus is giving to his disciples and is giving to all of us is this. Before judging unbelievers for their sins of unbelief, Jesus himself has to take their judgment and the judgment of everyone who believe in him on himself, the judgment of sin of every repentant sinner. He's going to take that judgment on that cross. That fire of judgment is going to hit him first. What Jesus did on the cross is that he took the place of the believer's death on that cross. He became the curse of the believer on that cross. He took the punishment of the believer 
on that cross. He received the penalties of the believers on that cross. Who are the believers? Everyone who acknowledged that their sinner is heading for hell and that Jesus took their judgment on that cross. Look with me, please, at verses 49 and 50. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. How I wish it were kindled. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the cross. He said, I have a baptism that has to, I have to undergo, and how distressed I am until it happens. Jesus carried that burden all of his life until he went to that cross, and there he hung, stretching his hands and bleeding love and mercy and said, it's finished, it is done, it's accomplished. He took the sin, he took the judgment, he took the punishment of everyone who believe in him. John the Baptist said, I baptize, I baptize with water, but he who comes after me is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit purifies the believer. It cleanses the believer. It sanctifies the believer. It seals the believer for the day of Christ. Verse 52 and 53. These are some of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied verses in the whole of the gospel. I want you to listen carefully, please. God-haters say that the Bible is full of hate speech. And I said, yeah, the Bible hates sin. <laughs> the Bible hates unrighteousness. Sure it is. The Bible hates bloodshed. On the other hand, this was happening in secular culture. M militant Muslims say, see, Jesus is a wielding the sword like we are. <laughs> and you read it in their writings. But that goes on and on and on. That's why I'm talking about the misinterpretation. Certainly, if Jesus wanted to shock his disciples into attention, he has succeeded here. <laughs> he has succeeded. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the only Prince of Peace, that Jesus is the only author of peace, that Jesus is the only giver of peace. You say, how then, he says, I did not come to bring peace? How come he, the one who said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world give peace do I give peace, but I, my peace, it does not make sense. It passes all understanding. Ah, Jesus wanted the disciples who already received the peace of God, who already have peace with God, he wants them to understand that the very mention of his name will bring them trouble, hatred, and persecution, and not peace. That's what he's trying to tell them. He's trying to warn them. The very act of identifying with Jesus and the name of Jesus will create a division between them and those who hate his name. That is, if the BBC that these are weaponized words, cancel culture, I can tell you the most dangerous two words put together is Jesus Christ. 
you put those two words together, and you are going to ignite a war. Yeshua HaMashiach. And I'm not speaking in tongues. That's his name in Hebrew. <laughs> he is telling them that his name is going to bring the wrath of the Jewish leaders. And beloved, for the first 400 years of Christianity in the Roman Empire, the name of Jesus would land you in jail and worse. Even today in China or in many Islamist countries, if you mention the name Jesus, if you embrace the name of Jesus, if you convert to Jesus, it will cause your family members to have the privilege of killing you. One of my colleagues, when he came to Christ and gave his life to Christ, his father shot four times in order to kill him. Mercifully, he missed every time. And he had to escape the country of his birth. Talk about division. Talk about lack of peace from those who have rejected Christ. Today in the United States, in public, you can pray in any name, Krishna, Buddha, any name, Allah, Muhammad, anybody, any name except Jesus. And if you do, you will be canceled so fast it will make your head spin. Listen to me. Never before have we seen hostility toward Christian family members, toward their f believing family members. Not in my lifetime, at least. Tragically, the name of Jesus Christ always produces some sort of painful division. And that was Jesus is talking about here. As he was warning him about. He was preparing him for that. To affirm Christ's claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God, no one comes to the Father, no one goes to heaven except through him is an offense to the cancel culture crowd. And that's what they like to cancel. Now, beloved, listen to me. Make no mistake about it. Jesus did not come to tell us that all paths lead to God. Jesus did not come to tell us that it doesn't matter what you believe. Jesus did not come to tell us that people are so good and with education they'll become perfect. Jesus did not come to tell us that you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody, even though that was really in the 60s. Now it doesn't matter if you hurt anybody for good cause. Let me tell you and declare to you, this is the false Jesus that is preached from many a pulpit today. This is preached from the so many called walk churches. Walk churches. Have you heard of them? Somebody asked me the other day, is our you church walk? I said, yes, of course it is. We've been praying for Holy Spirit awakening for the last 35 years. <laughs> We're very awoke. <laughs> I have known some precious family, families in the plural, whose children have disowned them 
because they are disciples of Jesus. But there's more. There's more. Division is only half the story. It's only half the story. Here Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, the book of Micah. Write it down. Don't go to it right now, but write it down. Micah chapter 7, beginning at verse 6. Jesus is quoting from the book of Micah, because Micah prophesied hundreds of years before Christ that one of the ways to recognize the Messianic age, one of the ways to recognize the Messiah when he comes, is that going to be the gospel is going to create a division. Those who believe and those who don't. Division between those who have accepted the Messiah and those who have rejected him. That's the division. So much for the modern preaching of getting unhitched from the Old Testament. And Jesus quoted the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. And he used it as a testimony to him. 300 passages in the Old Testament proclaimed and prophesied the coming of Jesus. And Jesus quoted the Old Testament. Don't you listen to anyone who tells you to get unhitched from the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that the true disciple of Christ must be willing to pay any price. I know that is an anathema to our culture. I know that. People want easy believism, easy Christianity. Christianity is going to make you healthy and wealthy and fat and all of that. In Luke chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus tells us about two would-be disciples. Two would-be disciples but did not become disciples. Why? Because they were unwilling to sacrifice anything, especially family relationships. One wanted to wait until he gets his inheritance. I know people, when they came to Christ, they were disinherited by their parents. And this is in the United States of America. This dear man wanted to wait until his father dies, gets the inheritance, then he followed Jesus. The other wanted to delay obedience to Jesus until he had settled everything in his family. To this half-hearted commitment, listen to me, to this half-hearted commitment, Jesus said, no one, no one, no one means no one, after putting his hand on the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Is that harsh? Yeah. But we become so soft in our Christianity. I wish you could meet the people that I meet when I travel. I wish you'd know the people that I know. And I have the privilege and the honor of fellowshipping with him who literally sign their life, their death warrant the moment they come to Jesus. And they know it. But the joy on their faces is indescribable. And they talk about death not by strangers, but by members of their family. Now, beloved, please listen to me. We are commanded. We're not given an option. We are commanded not only to love those 
who spitefully use us, but to pray for them. Can I get an amen? amen? Pray for the day that they discover the fallacy of the rejection of the true peace giver, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that when they repent, we should be prepared to embrace them and love them with the love of Christ. Pray that whenever they give up their enmity to Christ, which they created, when they realize that this enmity is of their own making, and they come to Christ, we will be ready to embrace them. Don't ever forget, don't ever forget the gospel that brings us inner peace even in the midst of turmoil, the gospel that brings us inner peace in the middle of difficult circumstances will also be the cause of the believers to be misunderstood, maligned, mistreated by those who don't believe, often by those who are closest to us, the nearest and the dearest. The most heart-rending division are always always among the dear and the near. I personally believe with all my heart, this is a personal opinion, there is no greater or deeper feeling of hurt and pain. Yet part of the cost of our discipleship as believers is to love even the family members who are non-believers with self-sacrificing love. John Bunyan, if you listen to me long enough, you know that I love that man. His book sold over 100 million copies. And if you haven't read it, your children haven't read it, you need to read it to them. In fact, I think our children ministry might have a film strip that was produced, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote it in prison. But what you don't know about John Bunyan is that he went to prison because he refused not to preach the gospel. They wanted him, they said, you won't have to go to prison. Stop preaching. He said, I can't. He knew that if he went to prison, his wife and children are going to be left destitute. They already had little food and even less clothing to wear while their father still free, let alone being imprisoned. And yet he knew that he must preach the gospel. That's what God called him to do. He must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he was imprisoned. And from his prison came, as I said, one of the greatest books. I read it as a new Christian after I gave my life to Christ. It literally transformed my life. Pilgrim's Progress. Now, he wrote other things, too. It's in well over 120 languages. From prison, he wrote the following. That's not, of course, in his book. Listen carefully, especially those of you who are experiencing the pain of separation. 
from non-Christian family members. Here's what he wrote from his prison. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as pulling flesh from my bone. Then he continued. All the thought of the hardship I thought my blind son might go under would break my heart to pieces. Yet throughout, I, I must do it. I must do it. I must do it. Finally, in this passage, our Lord Jesus Christ comments on those blindness, those who allow spiritual blindness to close their spiritual eyes, those who refuse to be discerning and talking about the danger of those religious leaders, to those religious leaders, verses 54 all the way to the end, 59. In fact, what Jesus does here, he gives us two illustrations, two illustrations. As a warning, beloved, this is a warning to us today, as they were to the disciples as a warning to those who lack discernment, which may put them in danger of missing out salvation altogether. Two parables. First of all, you have to understand these Jewish leaders, what they thought of themselves. And Romans chapter 2, verse 19, Paul tells us what they thought of themselves. They thought of themselves to be a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, uh, a a, a correction of, of the foolish and teachers of the immature. That's what they thought of themselves. And yet they fail to discern the monumental and the unparalleled reality that Jesus is God's Messiah and that He's among them. They have seen the numerous array of supernatural miracles. They've seen the dead rise. They have seen the blind could see. They have seen how the lame is able to walk. They have seen how the deaf ears were opened and were able to hear. And in the face of these irrefutable evidence of His Messiahship, they failed to comprehend that He's the one, that He's the one, that He's the one. The one for whom at least 300 prophecies said his coming, his coming, and the description of the birth, description of the suffering, description of the miracles, description of the resurrection. And these two illustrations, I'm going to tell you very quickly, two illustrations Jesus gives, not from me, it's from him. <clears throat> it was double-edged rebuke. The first illustration was to rebuke their Lack of discernment. They fail to discern the times. Oh, beloved, listen to me. I plead with you, discern the times in which we live. 
discern the times. I wish I've had more time to talk about that. But here's what he's rebuking them for not discerning the times in which they live. Secondly, he's rebuking them for not discerning the threat, the threat and the danger that's about to engulf them. First of all, the first, they failed to discern who Jesus was. Of course, back then, they did not have uh, modern tools of, that uh, meteorologists have today, uh, such as uh, satellite photos and uh, Doppler radar and sophisticated computer models and all of that. Yet, just simple observation of the weather, just simple observation by repeated weather pattern helped them to discern the short-term weather, what it's going to be like. Short-term forecast. I'll never forget myself as a boy. Again, this is in the days of Noah before uh, technology and science and all that stuff. And I was six years old, and, and a family friend uh, looked up in the sky one evening, and he said, it's going to be a scorcher tomorrow. And sure enough, it was 120 degrees. <laughs> How did you know that? He said, whenever you see the night sky red, you know it's going to be a very hot day. Just observation. Observation. He says, that's how they predicted the weather back then. Look at verse 54. When you see the clouds rising in the west, immediately you say, showers on its way. And so it happens. And Jesus said to them, you hypocrites! So much for the weak and mild Jesus, the milquetoast Jesus, the doormat Jesus. Oh, we didn't want to hurt their feelings. Well, that was not his priority. Oh, don't hurt anybody's feelings. Let me tell you something. I am very happy to hurt anyone's feeling if I can save them from hell. <laughs> you hypocrites! You know how to analyze the appearances of the earth and the sky, but you cannot recognize the time of your visitation from heaven. Why did you call them hypocrites? Why do you call them hypocrites? Because their spirituality was a false spirituality. Because their allegiance to God was a sham. Because their virtue was only for show. Because their religion was only external. And because their hearts were evil. Some of you may ask, well, Michael, what prediction of the weather and hypocrisy have got to do with each other? Well, I'm glad you asked because I want to answer you. They can draw a conclusion on weather patterns with far less evidence than what they saw with their eyes. Impeccable life, sinless life, supernatural miracles, all this evidence are conclusive of His Messiahship. That's hypocrisy. 
You know, I hear people all the time say, if we have miracles like the first century, if we have miracles, if we have signs and wonders, listen, I'm all for miracles, I see them every day. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, but, but I can tell you, no one saw more miracles, more signs and wonders than Judas Iscariot. You see, the Jews in the time of Jesus did not reject him because they looked at the evidence and they reject him based on the evidence. They didn't. But because he was not the military leader whom they wanted to come and liberate them from their enemies. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for the wrong one. They wanted an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. And they failed to recognize Jesus who said, my kingdom is not of this world. They failed to recognize the times. While it's true, thousands of these Jews came to know Jesus, believe in Jesus. Many of them suffered for Jesus, died for Jesus. I'm so grateful because those Jews from Alexandria who were in Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost and were converted to Christ, they brought the gospel to Alexandria, and my ancestors believed in Jesus and have been believing for 2,000 years. Many of them have, but the nation, as a nation, they rejected Jesus. So they failed to recognize the times. And secondly, the second illustration or rebuke is because they failed to recognize the danger and the threat. Verse 57, make the right judgment, he said. I want you to picture this. This is what he said. I just want you to picture it. You have an altercation with someone. You get into a dispute, and you go to the magistrate. And the magistrate or the judge is going to decide who's guilty and who's not and what the punishment is for that person. Now, he said, basically, Jesus is saying that guilty person knows he's guilty. So don't wait to go to the court. Settle out of court. Confess. Says, I'm sorry. Pay the penalty, whatever it is. Get it done before you get to the court. Get it done before you face the judge. And Jesus is saying to them, spiritually speaking, do that. Recognize that you need salvation. Recognize that you need repentance. Picture yourself standing before the great judge of the universe at the white throne judgment where you will be found guilty and the judgment will be not a few years in prison, but eternity in suffering and torment. Picture that. And Jesus is urging them and everyone at the sound of my voice, everyone at the sound of my voice, consider carefully the humongous threat of eternal judgment and embrace the gospel now before it's too late. Hebrews 9.27 said, It is appointed unto man to die once after that the judgment. In the face of this terrifying reality, God is offering great news of pardon. God is offering the great news of escaping the judgment. How? Through Jesus who bore God's wrath, through Jesus who satisfied God's demand for justice, through Jesus who received the Father's approval by raising him from the dead. Come to him now. Come to him now. Come to him now. 
and escape the judgment that is to come. One of the great preachers of yesteryear said the following, By his obedience, Christ wiped off our transgressions. By his sacrifice, he appeased the divine anger. By his blood, he washed away our sins. By his cross, he bore our curse. And by his death, he made satisfaction for us. Come now. I never know who's here and who's watching or because the gospel message is for everyone. It's for everyone. A few weeks ago, a lady came to our church for the first time, heard the gospel for the first time. She gave her life to Christ. She couldn't wait to go to the, her workplace and testify to what God did in her life on Sunday. That was on Monday morning, and one of those people shared that with me. Beloved, the invitation is now because in the end you're going to face Jesus and you're going to face him out of two ways, just like the fire. You're going to face him either as your redeemer and friend or you're going to face him as your judge. The choice is yours. It is my prayer that not one soul at the sound of my voice keep hardening their heart and keep postponing and keep rejecting because the day will come when, as they said in the day of Noah, God shut the door of the ark, and one day God is going to shut the door of mercy. May this be the day in which many people who have never committed their life to Jesus Christ, never repented of their sins, never accepted that death on the cross to be for them, would do it today. Can you do that with me as we pray? Beloved, you can see by my emotions, my longing to see that no one perish. I want you to imagine the heart of God who sacrificed his own son. He does not want anyone to perish, but have everlasting life. While every eye is closed and every head is bowed, if you are want to pray to receive Christ for the first time, please raise your hand and pull them down again. Just, I can pray for you. It's between you and heaven. Raise your hand. I've seen that hand in the back. Yes. Raise your hand. Pull them down again. I want to be assured that when I face him, not as my judge, but as my Savior and my Redeemer. Would you raise your hand? Now, some of you watching around online or around the world, you can raise your hand too. Can't see it? God, heaven, God in heaven can Thank you. Thank you. I've seen that hand in the back. Yes. Father, this is your gospel. This is your message. This is your invitation. It is not an invitation to join a church. It's an invitation to join the church in heaven. And Father, I pray for every heart, every soul, every individual who've committed them, themselves for the first time. Father God, you told us, Lord Jesus, that there is joy in heaven, more joy in heaven, when one person, one person, and I pray for everyone, even those who might have been too shy to raise their hands, but you know their hearts. Father, I thank you 
that the door is still open, that the opportunity is still here. And Father, I pray for the family members who have turned their hearts even after they have known Christ or walked with Christ and known what the gospel is all about, but they're living in the wilderness. I pray, turn their hearts toward you. For I pray that in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.